Well, good morning, everybody. Can you hear me through the speakers? Okay, good. All right, so today what I wanted to do was uh, talk about the love of God, the doctrine of the love of God. But amazingly enough, that is an incredibly difficult doctrine. Um, as a matter of fact, D.A. Carson even wrote a book called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And so um, I just, based on my, my schedule this week and everything, I could not get that together in any way that I thought would be acceptable. So we're kind of going to, we're jumping ahead just a little bit, and then I do want to come back to the love of God. Um, but this week we're going to talk about mankind, and then next week we're actually going to... Um, tie it into, um, you know, a lot more detail on male and female, um, husband and wife, kind of, kind of that sort of thing. Uh, we're going to tie it into uh, the, the uh, masculine mandate book. And so Ken's actually going to uh, uh, fill in next week and, and teach. So, uh, so this week, though, we're going to talk about mankind um, and what that means. And so let's pray, then we'll get started. Father, thank you again uh, for this morning, this time to come together uh, to study your word and then, um, and then just knowledge of you, um, knowledge of you and then knowledge of ourselves and how, how we relate to you. Father, I ask that um, you be with us, be with us in this time, um, have your spirit to, to penetrate our hearts and our minds and so that we um, learn truth and, and, and nothing else. Uh, Father, uh, help us to be convicted where we need to be convicted and encouraged where we need to be encouraged. Oh, we love you. We trust you. Help us to glorify you in everything that we do. Pray, uh, pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So before mankind, but first, I want to talk about, uh, this is a theology class, and so I want to talk about three ways that we, we speak or three, three ways that we use language. Now, it may seem boring, but it's actually a really important concept to grasp. I'm going to give you three uh, terms. And honestly, I don't care if you remember the terms or not. What I'm after is I want you to remember the concepts, okay? The ideas behind, behind those terms. Because the terms, they're worth nothing. Um, but the... Uh, the concepts themselves and the way we speak about each other, the way we speak about God, is, is really what's important. All right. So those three terms are univocal. I can never pronounce that. I keep wanting to say univocal, but I sound like a total hick when I say that. So uh, uh, univocal, equivocal, I can say that one pretty well, and then analogous. Okay, so let's go, go through those really, really fast. So uh, univocal... The same word means the same thing in different contexts. Okay? That's not the textbook definition, but that's a human definition. I think it's something that, that we, can, we can remember. So let me give you an example. Jan is a teacher, and Mallory is a teacher. Okay? So what comes to your mind if I say Jan is a teacher? Well, I'll, I'll start with that. What comes to your mind if I say Jan is a teacher? What does that mean? What am I telling you? She teaches, okay? She's a school teacher, uh, teaches history, uh, teaches at a public school, kind of that sort of thing, right? Um, Mallory is a teacher. Mallory, I don't think, teaches history. You teach other stuff, math, yeah. Um, that's the same thing, though, right? 
Um, no, so, <laughs> so they teach different subjects, but they're still, they're still school teachers in, you know, in the school system, uh, thing of, things of that nature. So when I describe Jan as a teacher and Mallory as a teacher, I'm using the same terms, the same word in the same way to describe both of them. Uh, if I say Tom is an architect and Mike Brady is an architect, okay, who's Mike Brady? Brady from the Brady Bunch, right. So what, what's an architect? The, somebody designs buildings, houses, that sort of thing, right? Come on, guys, you need to help me out here. Um, so, uh, so again, Tom, uh, Tom's an architect, Mike Brady's an architect, even though one of them is really a... Uh, fictitious person and the other one's a real person, I'll, I'll leave it to you to guess which one's which, then um, we are, but we are using that word in the same way to describe both of them. And I can say stealing is bad, and I can say murder is bad. So what does bad mean? Morally abject. Morally abject. That's a great word, right? Uh, it's, it's morally, ethically, it's uh, bad. It's a, it's a sin. It's sinful. That sort of thing. All right. Yeah, yeah. And so what you have is this anomalous propagation going through the dispensation. No, I'm kidding. So, all right. Yeah, I told, I, I promised um, George I was going to work anomalous propagation into, into the sentence because I heard him, or into the class because I heard him say that a few minutes ago. All right. So equivocal. Now, what does equivocal mean? Well, it's the same word, means different things in different contexts. Okay. So if I say, uh, I can barely read that, but remember a second ago we said stealing is bad, and we said murder is bad, and bad meant the same thing when we're describing stealing and murder, right? But what's it mean when we say the milk is bad? Sour. Right. Is there a moral implication of that? No. I mean, you could say it, went, it goes back to the fall, and milk wouldn't spoil if it wasn't for the fall, but that's really kind of getting a little abstract. Um, so, what's that? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's another. One. Oh, yeah, Michael Jackson's bad. I'm bad, I know it. Yeah. Well, actually, I'm sorry. That was a cheer. We're bad. We know it. We got the stuff to show it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what you can see is the same word means different things in different contexts, right? Nietzsche's book, The Gay Science, was written in the late 1900s. Okay. It didn't mean back then, what we would think that it means today. If you saw a book on the bookshelf at, at Barnes & Noble, or, well, I guess you could say, you were going through Amazon.com and you saw a book called The Gay Science that was published in you know, 2023, you would have a, per, a particular idea of what that book was about, right? But Nietzsche's book, written, what, 150 years ago, um, was not about homosexuality at all. It was, it's also known as the joyful wisdom. So it's that word gay can, you know, again, has is, is changed in meaning in terms of, um, can mean different things depending on the context of the conversation. I think I mentioned this in the first week or two, but, you know, Muslims, when they're out, quote unquote, evangelizing, um, what they call dawah, they'll talk to to Christians, and they'll say, oh, you believe in Jesus, we believe in Jesus too. Now, what does that mean? Do they mean the same thing by believe in Jesus that we do? No, they don't. Go ahead. 
Well, they believe he was a prophet, but what they're really saying is that, that he exists. We believe that Jesus was a historical figure. And if that's the basis of your salvation, then um, yeah, I, we, we need to have a conversation. Right. Then Jehovah's Witnesses say they believe in Jesus. Well, what do they mean by Jesus? Well, is he, you know, we, we describe Jesus as the second member of the, of the Trinity, the eternal Trinity, right? That he's, he's divine. He's the God-man. Jehovah's Witnesses say that, no, he was, he's man. Um, he's, a, he's a created being. And so when they say Jesus, we say Jesus, we're actually talking about two different things. And that's one of the reasons why we can't sit in a pew next to a Jehovah's Witness because what we have in mind when we're talking about worship is two different things. Okay? All right. So there's the three ways of speaking. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. So the last one, analogous. Okay? The same word means similar or parallel things in different contexts. Okay? So Tom said, you wore out your welcome with random precision. Has anybody ever heard that sentence before? Tom, where's it from? Pink Floyd, yeah. You shine on your crazy diamond, right? We were just talking about Pink Floyd yesterday. So. Um, but the key here is, is Tom said. What does the word said mean? I'm going to wait for a response on this one. He spoke. What does that mean? Huh? That's fair. He, he opened his mouth. He began to utter things. Sounds came out, and somebody heard it, right? And, the, and those, um, you know, you can really break it down and get ridiculous and talk about airwaves and, you know, different things like that. But the point is, Tom used his mouth to utter something, right? And so when we say Tom said, that's specifically what we mean by, by that sort of thing. God said, let there be light. Now, did God, before the creation of the world, utter, let there be light, with his mouth, in English? We'll set the English thing aside for a second. Does God have a mouth? No, the answer is no. Okay? Um, But, so, those mean distinct things. They mean different things. But you know what? They're... They're, they're, they're analogous. They are parallel. They're similar, right? So what's it saying? It's saying that God conveyed information, right? And so it's a rough parallel to Tom speaking, okay? So when we speak of God and we speak of mankind, they don't apply. It's not a one-to-one mapping between the two, okay? The concepts are similar, but we... We use analogous language to describe God because we just have to do that in order to understand anything about him. He is so majestic. He is so um, transcendent. I shouldn't say so because it's not like it's a matter of degree. He is transcendent. He is majestic. He's perfect. He's complete. He's undefiled. Our minds can't comprehend that. And so what we have to use is the way we use our language in describing him is, is generally analogous to something that we have in, in the world, the way we speak in the world, right? So going back to last week, we say we give grace to one another and God gives us grace, okay? Ours is an um, imitation of his grace. His grace is... is um, 
uh, original, it's undefiled, okay? It's underived, it's perfect, okay? It's amazing, you know? But um, the grace that we give is a reflection of his grace. It's, a, it's kind of like, one of, one of the ways I, I think of it, I can't remember where I read this, but um, if you think of the moon, the moon is a, is a crater-ridden, gray, dirty place, you know? But the moon reflects the light of the sun. And when it does, when it does that, it becomes beautiful. You know, I mean, think of all the romantic songs and movies and things of that nature that are describing just the beauty of this moon out there. When in reality, it's a pretty darn ugly thing. Well, what makes it beautiful? It's the reflection of the light of the sun, okay? In a similar way, you and I are that crater-ridden, you know, uh, fill, fill in your own adjectives, right? But when we reflect the glory of God, when we reflect his grace, when we reflect his love, that's when we reflect his glory, okay? From a What's that? From a distance, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, another example is we love one another, and God loved us while we were sinners, right? So, his love is perfect. Again, perfect, undefiled. Um, ours is very, very corrupt, very imperfect, that sort of thing. But we still use the same word. It's an analogous um, it's a, again, it's an analogous idea. It's an analogous use of, of language. Um, one other one I'll throw out there is, um, you know, you're sitting in chairs and God is sitting on his throne. You know, but there's not a physical throne out there. It's, what it's saying is it's, it's a metaphor and it's saying that, um, you know, God is uh, sitting on his throne. In other words, he's ruling the world. He's ruling the, the universe. Okay, does that make sense? Okay. All right, so the three, I'll just throw up there real quick. So uh, univocal, I always stumble on that word. Uh, the same word means the same thing when describing both God and man. Equivocal, the same word means completely different things when describing God and man. Now, if I stop right there, you know, honestly, I was struggling yesterday with coming up with a word, and I'm not saying that there's not one, I was trying to think of a word that we can use to describe God and man, both, um, each one in different contexts, but the word where one, in, in the first case, is univ, univ, univocal, um, where it means completely different things. No, no, uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right. I'll jump to that one. So I'll do the second one first. So where it means completely different things. Right? So if we say um, uh, Randy loves and we say God loves, um, that's not equivocal language. Right? That's analogous language. And if we say, um, but at the same time, Randy's love and God's love are not exactly the same thing. So what we have to do is, again, it's analogous. Okay? So anytime that we're, we're talking in this class, we're using, um, almost always, we're using uh, analogous language. Why am I telling you this? Well, God's attributes, again, I think I've already said this, but God's attributes are perfect, undefiled, and original. You know? Um, I 
if you look in First um, John four, it says uh, God is what? God is love. Okay. Well, what does that mean? Well, I've read a lot of commentaries. I've let's do a bunch of sermons on that one little verse, those three little words. And one of the, uh, we'll talk about that more in a, in a couple of weeks, but one of the things that it does not mean is that God is the most loving of all creatures, or not creatures, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to say that. God is the most loving of all beings. Now, why does it mean that? I mean, he is the most loving, but that's not where we stop, right? So what's the difference between God is the most loving and God is love? Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Very good. God is love is, in a sense, defining what love is. It's love is um, the source of love. When John says that um, if we love one another, it's because what? Sorry? He first loved us. So we can only love one another in the sense that God first loved us, and what we're doing is reflecting that love. Yes, ma'am? If we were going to define love, wouldn't we reverse it and say love is God? But if we start the sentence, God is love, then aren't we really defining God? So maybe what's being positive here is that love is a defining characteristic. Exactly. Yes. I I agree with that. Um, That's also one of the things that we'll talk about in two weeks is God is love is not the same thing as saying love is God. Because if we say that love is God, now all of a sudden all of his other attributes are gone. Wrath is gone, all these other things are gone. But if we say God is love, then what we're saying is, is, is it's, um, it's a, a, a part of, I hate to use a term like the fabric of God, but again, we have to use analogous language, right? It's a part of God's being. And it's, uh, love is something that, that um, it's a communicable attribute. So in other words, um, we love as well. It's something that we um, inherited from. Inherited from him? Yeah. Reflect him. Yes. The whole aspect of love is in him. Like the whole like he's not in love. The whole love itself is right. in him, a part of him. It's defined in him only. Yes. Completely. Right. And then just like wrath would be defined in him completely. Yes. Yeah. Everything else flows out of that. Right. So so just a um so everybody can hear. So um God is love, it, part of that. What that means is that love is defined completely within God. It's it's whole is within God. It's it's whole is is within God. Right, exactly. The same with um, divine wrath and and that sort of thing. Um, One of the ways I kind of think about it is, let's assume for a second that um, there's no lights in here. It's completely 100% pitch black. And somebody somebody the other day said something about... um, being in a cave, I think it was Tom, said being in a cave, and it's the kind of darkness that you can feel in your bones, you know? So let's assume that that's what, what's out here, uh, that, that's, the, the, that's the environment in which we live, and hey, let's just say that's the environment in which we always, um, we've always lived, okay? And then, boom, there's a candle that's, that's litten, litten, <laughs> lit in the middle of the room, you know? That candle is light, and it is the only source of light that, that, that we have, 
right? And everything that we do would reflect off of, you know, we could set up mirrors and stuff, but it's that light is where everything is coming from. And so in a similar sort of way, God is light, um, that is, he is truth, and he is holy. That's what that verse means. But at the same time, God is love, and um, he, he's the only source of love. He is the only source of holiness and truth, right? So then our versions of these attributes are imperfect, uh, corrupted, and derived, okay? And one of the things that happens, kind of a, a barrier that we have in understanding God's attributes are um, that what we do is we tend to project our own shortcomings onto him, right? So think about wrath for a minute. Wrath is probably about the most unpopular attribute of God that's out there right now, right? And um, for lots of reasons, one is people are under, unregenerate, unregenerate and, they want, and they rebel against God. Um, but when you think of wrath, what do you think of? Okay? You think of this kind of capricious, uh, vengeful, just nasty sort of, sort of thing. Okay? Um, I think of a, a particular person um, yelling um, with just teeth showing and spit flying out of his mouth and all kinds of names coming out of his mouth. And it's like, for a long time, that was my image of wrath. That was my image of, of anger. And that's the only way that I understood what, what those words meant. That's not God's wrath. That is not holy anger. Okay? God's wrath is a radically different thing. It is holy. It is always holy. It's never capricious. And it's always in response to sin. Okay? And, so, and it's never outside of love. And so, um, that's, again, that's one of the, the problems that we have when we're talking about theology is we're taking our own shortcomings and projecting those on, up onto God. Okay? Um, any questions so far? All right. So we're called to reflect his glory, and we do so in an imperfect way. Okay? We are to, called to, how do we reflect his glory? If you think about what glory is, it's, um, you know, the word comes from like a weightiness. And it's, it's in uh, um, contrast to something that's light or vapor, Right? Something's vapor or, or light. It's um, it, it's it's wispy, right? It just kind of goes away. It's it doesn't have any weight behind it. it. Doesn't have any importance behind it. But if we talk about like the weightier manner uh, matters, right? If we talk about something that's really weighty, well, it's kind of it's got some. It keeps saying weight, but we got some. It's got some weight behind it. It's got some heft. You know, it's profound. Um, that's what God's glory is, is it's his weightiness. It's his worthiness to be worshipped. And so he demonstrates that, and we are put on this earth as his, as his image, as his priests, as his prophets, to, um, uh, to reflect that glory, reflect that weightiness, and demonstrate to all the creation why he's worthy to be, um, be worshipped. You know, we fail miserably, but at the same time, that glory is still reflected in, in some way. 
And then we tend to project our own versions of these attributes onto him, which is what I just, just talked about a few minutes ago. All right. All right. So one more thing, and then we'll actually get started with the class. Um, so at the beginning, I kind of, uh, the first class, I don't know, 10, 12 weeks ago, I meant to uh, recommend some resources. Um, and I don't want to be the kind of guy that every week I'm throwing, to, hey, you need to read this book. Hey, you need to read that book. Um, but these are four <clears throat> theological works, um, systematic theologies, if you will, that are um, probably my four favorite. On the left, you have Wayne Grudem. Um, Grudem's systematic theology is kind of um, probably about the most popular out there these days. What I like about it is he writes very clear, very concise. He doesn't use a lot of flowery, flowery language. And he always gives you uh, references right back to Scripture. He always ties his, what he's saying in with Scripture. And it's, it's a very practical way. That, that book's about 1,600 pages. So if you see it, it's about, well, about that thick. Well, it's not really meant to be read cover to cover. If you want to do that, that's great. But you don't have to. What I generally use it for is when I'm going into something, I'll, I'll open up Grudem um, or if I have a question about, um, if I have a question about, uh, you know, a particular theological topic, I'll turn to Grudem and kind of see what he has to say. Not only does he make really good observations in terms of doing theology, but he always points me to the, the scripture that his his um, opinions and his observations are based on. So it's a great book to have. I actually um, just saw this morning where it's on Audible as well. Right? Now, you have to be careful when you get systematic theology books in Audible because when they do have a lot of scriptural references, man, as they're reading just the, you know, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, and there's a long string of them, it, it can get pretty tedious. And it can really break up kind of the flow. Because if you're reading a paragraph and you're just skipping the, you know, you can skip the, the parentheses if that's what you want to do and then go back and look at the scripture a little bit later. Um, so I haven't listened to it, so I don't know how good it is, but I think I'm going to go ahead and use one of my credits to get it on Audible. Um, and he's, it's also on Kindle. Um, Charles Hodge, um, I think it was published in 1871, if I remember correctly. He's an old Princeton um, reform guy, absolutely amazing. My favorite part of his is the beginning of his um, of the, the, the work, it's a three-volume work, but at the beginning of it, he talks about method. And I know that sounds really boring, um, but if you go in and you read it, it's, it's pretty fascinating. And he talks about, like, the way the mystics approach scripture, the way, or theology, um, the way the Catholics approach theology. He does a little bit of, like, comparative theology. And it's um, he do, he, an amazing job. Um, and my favorite is probably when he's actually defining what theology is. It's actually the definition that I used um, um, in the first, first, class, uh, first week of this class. Um, and the cool part is it's four bucks on Kindle. You know, so you, you, you kind of can't beat that. that. That explanation of what theology is is at least worth that. Herman Bavink, um, or as Ken would say, Ermon Bavink, um, that's a four-volume work. It's kind of like Hodge, only it's really, I mean, if you stack, you know, four volumes, it's, it stacks up about, about that high. It's huge. But it's, I mean, pack a lunch if you're going in there. But it's amazing deep stuff. And then 
course, John Calvin Institutes of the Christian Religion. Um, it's probably the most enriching, but it's the, most, it's the deepest, and you really have to think about what you're reading. And on the negative side, you don't always get pointed back to, to Scripture. Okay? Um, so, but I recommend those four, and if I had to get it down to two, I'd say the two on the left, and if I had to recommend one, I'd say the first one. Yes, sir? Uh-huh. That's a great point. Um, so systematic theology, Charles Hodge. Um, had, there's also A.A. A. A. Hodge. You probably don't want to um, get his stuff. You want Charles Hodge. And then um, Herman Bovink. Who's the? Johannes is nephew. Okay, yeah, go with Herman. All right, Herman, Herman's cool. Uh, but like I said, pack a lunch if you're going to read that one. It's, it's really chewy. And one quick note about, about Grudem is a lot of people have uh, some heartburn over Grudem because he's, uh, in terms of the spiritual gifts, which we'll talk about at some point, um, he is uh, a uh, kind of a continuationist. So we generally wouldn't, wouldn't agree with his, his approach there. But at the same time, I think his, his, um, he, it's very nuanced. And so it takes some studying to understand what, what he's saying. Yes, yes, ma'am. That the, the sign gifts, particularly the sign gifts of uh, the early church, um, are still in effect today, right? So, um, yeah, healing, tongues, prophecy, that sort of thing. All right, so we got 20 minutes left. <laughs> I did not expect that. That's funny. All right, any, any questions? Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. This is, is difficult, and I sure. know the scriptures replete with right. stuff about that. But I always thought of, you know, because we are who we are, failed yep. humans, mm-hmm. and all of our works are as filthy rags, yep. you know, and so the things that we do will never reflect the glory of God, right. but the things that God does through us would yeah. reflect his glory. And so the, when we reflect God's glory, it's not in... We're not emanating a characteristic right. that is similar to what, in any way, shape, or form, to what God is. This uh, this is all in the form of a question, mm-hmm. in okay. the form of a statement, but it's right. a question. Um, and so I don't. I, I've just always thought that it's talking about how, as He works in us, yep. um, His He is glorified. Yep. Um, you're you're exactly yeah. That's exactly it. So that's the whole idea behind um, when we love one another. Right, um, if if some act of love, whatever it may be, it may be benevolence or whatever the case may be, if it's legitimately love, it didn't originate with you or me or Stuart or whoever, especially Stuart. But if it it originated with God, and it's the Spirit working in us that's regenerating our heart, and and um, and that's the way in which we reflect. We can't. We can't reflect God's glory without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is, is you know, the one doing, doing the, the reflecting, doing the work, basically. We're the, we're the dark, creator, desolate, yeah. Mm-hmm. That is dead. Right. Absolutely. Ab- ab- absolutely. Absolutely. And that's the biggest problem that I have with like Catholic. Well, okay, it's not the. It's one of the top five problems I have with Catholic theology, is that. Um, you know, it, it's, you know, um, or in Methodist theology as well, 
it's not that we're spiritually lazy. It's not that we're spiritually incapable. That's not the right word. It's not that we're spiritually um, kind of insufficient in matter of degree. It's that we're spiritually dead, you know? I hear, uh, I've heard a lot in the past um, how, you know, you know, God throws us a, a life preserver. And, you know, Jesus is kind of like a life preserver. You know, if you're, if you're in the ocean and you grab the, the life, you have to be the one to grab the, the life preserver. But that's very much not a scriptural concept. If, if you want to use that analogy, you're, you're dead floating in the water and, you know, Jesus dives in and pulls you and, and gives you, you know, CPR and revives you. So um, does that answer your question? Yeah? Okay, cool. All right, so what is the defining characteristic of mankind? Sin. Well, the defining characteristic of mankind is uh, that God said, um, and we'll get to that here shortly, that um, God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. It comes from Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. That is mankind, um, and I'll say that's mankind without sin. So sin is not um, an innate characteristic of man in his original state. Right? It is now. Propensity of sin for sin mm-hmm. So, um, rhetorical questions. Um, so, what does it mean to be in the image of God? In what way was man created in God's image? What's the difference between image and likeness? Does it mean that humans are divine? Does the passage imply that mankind was uniquely created in God's image? Is mankind still still uh, is mankind still God's image bearers? And are men more in God's image than women, or vice versa? See what the theologians have to say. I'm, I'm going to go through this a little bit quicker than I wanted to because I'm so far behind on time. So a little historical theology here. Um, Irenaeus, uh, mid-2nd century, he distinguished between image and likeness in Genesis 1. He believed that image referred to our rationality and likeness referred to our morality. He said that mankind at the, at the fall lost the likeness of God but still maintains the image. Therefore, our likeness is what is being restored in Christ. Okay? Now, the first question I'll ask about that is, how do you infer something like that? It seems to me, um, and maybe I'm not giving him enough credit, but it seems to me that he is, has kind of a bunch of presuppositions that aren't so much biblical, and he's kind of projecting it onto the text. And then it begs the question, are rationality and morality the only two aspects of humanity, right? Are we not like God in our emotions, in our relationships, in any of those things, right? And does this mean that the fall had no impact on our ability to think rationally? If anything, the fall definitely had um, our ability, or I'm sorry, it definitely impacted our ability to think rationally. The reason I say that is because God is, the existence, the divine attributes of God 
are clearly perceived in the things that have been made. But we suppress them in what? Unrighteousness. Rebelling against an omnipotent and holy God is probably about the most unrational thing that a person can do. And so just that alone, I'll say that um, our rationality um, had to be impacted as well. So I love Irenaeus, but I, I think he fell short on this one. Thomas Aquinas uh, believed that the image of God was mankind's ability to think rationally, noting that, noting that animals do not have this ability, but he said that angels are smarter than we are. So he concluded that there are, they are more in God's image than us. I don't know where in the world he got that. Um, but I find it interesting that Aquinas was a very rational thinker. And this is one of the, you have to be careful when you read about um, things like this, um, like the, um, what it means to be in the image of God and what it means, you know, you know the quest for the, the historical Jesus, what was you know, Jesus like? Because what happens is these folks tend to take themselves and project them onto God. Right? So Aquinas was a very rational thinker. He, um, uh, uh, Aristotle was actually his, his, um, his mentor, if you will, you know, 1,500, 1,600 years removed. But he was Aristotle first, Bible second. And there might be some people who take exception with that. We can have a conversation if you want. But um, it's kind of the way I read it. And so what happens is you have people like, like Dorothy Sayers, who was a friend of C.S. Lewis and G.R. Tolkien, and she was an artist. And so she wrote a book called The Mind of the Maker. And when I'm reading the book, it was kind of fascinating, but guess what? God is an artist, you know? And if a, an engineer wrote a book, you know, if Stuart wrote a book about God, he, you know, God would be an engineer, you know? And so what we have to do is we have to be very careful when we're reading these theologians that are saying God is... Um, that either, either um, God is like this or the image of God is like this because a lot of times they, they're kind of, they got their own slant that they're, they're putting into it. Um, but with Aquinas, it begs the question, does, does everyone have the capacity to think rationally? What do you do with folks who are um, um, severely mentally disabled? Are they not in the image of God? That's a travesty if, the answer, if, if you agree with that. Okay? Those folks are as much the image of God as, as anybody else. Does this mean that intelligent people are more like God than everyone else? Well, no, because intelligent people tend to be some of the most evil people in the, in the world. Right? <clears throat> Calvin to the rescue. Calvin said that there is essentially no difference between image and likeness. Amen. He believed that all aspects of the human being are in some way a reflection of God. We bear the image and likeness of God in a multitude of ways, functionally, relationally, rationally, and affectionately. Functionally, in terms of what we do, right? Um, we are, what we're supposed to do, I'll put it that way. We are giving dominion over, the, over creation. Um, so we... Um, uh, we're like God in, in, that, in that respect. We, um, relationally, we have interpersonal relationships 
um, affections. We um, have a, affection for, for one another. And then, of course, rationally, we, we also think rationally. But that image is corrupted. As a result of uh, Adam's rebellion in the garden, the image of God became corrupted. So in what ways, way or ways, has the image of God been, been corrupted? Anybody? What aspects? Did we land on what the image of God is so that we can identify then how it was corrupted? Okay. You want, can you? Are we taking Calvin's stance? Yeah, we're, yeah, we're taking Calvin's stance. Okay. Yeah, cool. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, good point. I, I agree with Calvin. Sorry. <laughs> I, see where, I see where you're going there. Um, so in what way has, has the image of God been, been corrupted? Yeah, all those ways. And if we break it down, has it impacted our ethics? Clearly, we're, we're, sinful, we're sinful creatures now. Emotions? Yeah, we, um, we rejoice in unrighteousness, and we're not supposed to do that. So we, our emotions um, are impacted by the fall as well. Our desires? Yes, we have unhealthy desires for sex and money and everything else. Anything that's not God, essentially. Uh, rationality? Absolutely. I was going to share a story of a, an astrophysicist, but um, we don't really have time. But our rationality is impacted. And you can go back to the, the Romans passage that I, uh, I mentioned a few minutes ago, and that's an example of that as well. Our relationships? Oh, yeah, our relationships are completely messed up. We put ourselves first. We don't love, love one another as we would love ourselves. Um, all sorts of uh, problems. So every aspect of a human being is corrupted by sin. The doctrine of total depravity, that's what it's called, total depravity. Total depravity does not mean that we are as sinful as we could be. It means that every aspect is, um, is corrupted. So the doctrine, the doctrine of total depravity says that as a result of the fall, every part of man, mind, will, emotions, and physical body, have been corrupted by sin. In other words, sin affects everything, including who we are, what we think, and what we do, so that all our righteous acts are like filthy rags before a holy God. That's going back to what George mentioned just a few minutes ago. Does this mean that mankind ceased being in the image of God after the fall? No. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll turn to two verses to support that. Um, the first is Genesis nine. Um, this is uh, God, you know, speaking to Noah um, um, after the the flood. He said, "Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made in His own image, or for God made man in His own image. And you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply." In it. So it kind of goes back to the, the creation narrative. Um, and, but what he's saying is that the basis, the underlying basis for capital punishment in Noah's time would have been that, uh, that man is, is created in the image of God. And it doesn't do us any good if it says, okay, Adam was in the image of God, but we lost it, because then that basis wouldn't be there. And then James 3 says, no human being can tame the tongue, 
It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of, of God. I think it's interesting that the first one uses image and then the second one uses likeness. But um, this just goes to show that our, the basis for us loving one another, treating one another uh, in a loving way, treating one another fairly and compassionately, goes back to the fact that we are created in the image of God. And the people that we mistreat, the people that we speak evil about, um, the people that we curse, they are all God's image. And God doesn't, um, doesn't like that very much. So this is a quote from Grudem. He says, Since man has sinned, he is certainly not as fully like God as he was before. His moral purity has been lost, and his sinful character certainly does not reflect God's holiness. His intellect is corrupted by falsehood and misunderstanding. His speech no longer continually glorifies God. His relationships are often governed by selfishness rather than love and so forth. Though man is still in the image of God in every aspect of life, some parts of that image have been distorted or lost. After the fall, then, we are still in God's image. We are still like God, and we still represent God, but the image of God in us is distorted. We are less fully like God than we were before the entrance of sin. All right, so implications. Since we're created in God's image, if we're created in God's image, this means we are not what? Huh? Divine. Divine, exactly. We're not God. Okay, so lots of New Age folks, um, what we call monists, pantheists, what they'll say is, yeah, you're all divine. There's even some, some quote-unquote Christian heretics out there that say that um, we are all um, you know, uh, we're all divine in some way, right? But these are all heresies. Um, we are not God. And that's one of the reasons why I think that Genesis 1, um, what, verse 27, was written in the way that it was. It says, created in the image of God, and then throws in, in his likeness. That makes it clear that, that man, mankind is not God. Okay, and that's... Man, if we had to come away with one thing, that would probably be it. What does, uh, what does being in God's image say? However, what does being in God's image say for human dignity? There are certain rules and expectations about how we treat ourselves and other human beings. Good. Regardless of how they behave, because that dignity is to be violated, but it can't be eradicated. Good. Very, very good. And, and I'll say dignity or value, it, it can be violated, but it can't be eradicated, exactly. Um, every person in the world is of, in, of infinite value, of being made in the image of God. And it's, it's, it's like the, the underlying um, foundation of, of Christian ethics in terms of how we treat one another, because you know, that's the way God is, is organized the way that, that he's revealed himself to us. How should this impact ethics? Well, like I just said, it's we, you know, if, if I'm mistreating, you know, Stuart, um, even though he deserved, no, I'm kidding. So if I'm mistreating Stuart, then I'm mistreating not just, you know, something, some inanimate object out there, 
um, or even some thing that is of little value, I'm mistreating somebody that God created in his own image. And that is an affront to God um, straight up. Is this limited to a subset of humanity? One race, one gender, one, you know, whatever. One eye color, you know? No. One capacity for reason, you know? The age of somebody, whether you're inside or outside of the womb, no. Um, It's all of humanity. It's each individual that's made in God's image. So how does this compare with other ancient religions? I won't go too deep into this because we don't have time, but, you know, in the Enuma Elish, who can tell me, like, um, where man came from and for what purpose he was created um, in that Mesopotamian, Mesopotamian creation myth called the Enuma Elish? Tom? Created to be servants, but where did we come from? The blood of a demon, right? And so those are the story, Those are the kinds of stories that um, the the Israelites in Egypt would have been familiar with. They would have heard something about um, um, the, the the creation narratives in, in Genesis, but they would have been steeped in that pagan uh, those pagan creation myths where mankind was seen as being created as a slave to a bunch of capricious, spoiled brat um, gods, and that um, we're created from the blood of a demon, and there's no dignity at all unless you're the king. And if you're the king, now you are raised up and you are essentially a god yourself. Okay, That's the way they corrupted it. And so I, I keep going back to when Moses, when God revealed you know, the Pentateuch to Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and then, and then Moses gave those to the Israelites, what would, how would they have responded? Just those, that first chapter of Genesis, and you're going, wow, I'm not the blood of a demon. I'm a sinful person, because I found that out in, in Genesis 3. But I'm created in the image of God. Yeah. I I can't even imagine the impact that that would have had on um, pretty much the whole whole nation. No, no, you're not worthless in God's eyes. The church that I used to go to, um, I remember that's what the pastor, quote-unquote pastor, used to say um, on occasion. You know, you're sinful, you're this, you're that, which is true. You're a wretched sinner, okay but you're worthless in God's eyes. And that's what, you know what? Stop. You went too far. You said something wrong. Yes, sir. The Hasidic Jews. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is that, do they see us as not in the image of God, or is that just, we're not the chosen people? Well, the Hasidic Jews, that actually goes back a long way. You remember when um, uh, Jesus, uh, when he, in Matthew 15, when he's talking to the, um, the Sir, if it calls her Seraphonician or Canaanite, one or the other. Anyway, it's the woman that was um, had the the demon possessed girl, and he kept following her. Uh, I'm sorry, she kept following him, um, and the disciples were like, "Tell her to leave us alone." 
And she came to Jesus and kneeled before him and said, you know, um, some of the effect of, of, of son of David, save me. And how did he respond? He said, he said, um, it's not right to give the children's bread to the dogs. There's a very Jewish thing. You have the Jews and then you have dogs, right? And then how did she respond? The most amazing response of any human being to anything. Even the dogs eat the bread that call, fall from the master's table. I just had chills go down my spine. Um, she knew her place. She knew who she, who she was talking to, right? But going back to your question, that idea of, of dogs and being less than human goes, goes back a long way. Yeah. All right. Male and female. Um, I got no sarcasm zone thrown up there. The reason I say that, I mean that in in all um, sincerity. This is a subject we're going to spend three minutes on, which I don't know if I should even get into it or not. But we make jokes about topics. And when we make a joke about a topic, which is a very sore point of contention for somebody, based on history, based on perhaps the way childhood, based on all sorts of different things. It may be funny to us, but it's not necessarily funny to them. So what I ask is, please, no sarcastic jokes about male and female and man and wife and not relating and that sort of thing. Yes, sir? What is a woman? Um, <laughs> um, I'll tell you what. We'll, uh, we'll take that offline. <laughs> um, no you, you like Matt Walsh, too, huh? All right. All right, so very quickly, in today's world, what's the difference between sex and gender? I'll go ahead and, and, and answer that. It's, um, sex is a biological thing. Gender is the social constructs by which um, uh, people perform certain roles, that sort of thing, the way we dress, um, kind of that sort of thing. But it's seen as a, as a social, social construct, okay? My question is, is that a, and I think it's, fine to make that distinction, but the question is, is that a biblical distinction? And I'll say no, okay? Again, going back to the the first um, week of this class, we talked about the difference between distinct and separate, okay? If I distinguish between Stuart's head and his body, okay, I'm just providing information, that sort of thing, but if I separate his head from his body, I'm doing violence to him, right? So it's fine to distinguish between uh, roles that people play in biological sex, but I don't think, I don't see it as any kind of biblical distinction um, to, to separate those two things, right? Okay. So is, more, is one gender more like God than the other? Okay. And the answer is no. Um, the, a very similar question would be, which member of the Trinity is more divine? Bless you. It's actually a relevant question. It's an equivalently nonsense question, okay? Because every member of the Trinity is fully and completely and eternally divine. Um, just like each uh, member, uh, I'm sorry, the, the two different genders are each created equally in God's, in God's image, not one more than, more than the other. Yes, ma'am. What do you mean? 
Well, what I sense? Mean, in our in our Bibles, mm-hmm. English Bibles, and I and the Greek as well, God is referred to with male pronouns, right? Okay. He, Father, okay. Son. Okay. So I would say that God is male in some sense, and maybe I don't fully understand okay. how God pre-incarnation is male because I understand maleness in the context of humanity. Right. Right. But I also understand that humans exist as male and female, right. which I know you're getting to. Sure. So I would say that since God exists as male and humans exist as male and female, then male humans and a male God have their maleness in common. But I do right. not have the maleness in common with God. So I would say there is some similarity there that exists sure. between male humans and a male God that does not exist between female humans and God. Can we distinguish between essence and role? Well, Be- between that, being and role. Well, I think in the conversation of male and female, we've just, we've just stated that's not a biblical distinction. Be- between being and role? Be- but what, what we're doing here is God and his being, so go before creation, mm-hmm. right? There is no male and female. The reason we, there, there's two reasons that we um, uh, refer to God as he, right? Well, the, re- the reason that pronoun is in the Bible, I believe. Number one is that we need to choose a personal pronoun for him because that keeps him from being um, seen as an impersonal force, right? Like the Enuma Elish does. You have fate, you have the meta-divine realm, that sort of thing. So one, we need a personal pronoun. Secondly, in terms of the father, what I'll say is the father's roles that, that the, the father plays are one of authority and the way he has set up man and woman, the household, that sort of thing, is that the, the male, the man, um, has more has the, the authority, um, the provider, the protector, that sort of thing. If we go to um, if we go to Genesis one, um, chapter one, verse two, it talks about the the Holy Spirit um, hovering over the creation. Now, if you go to the end of Deuteronomy, that same word hovering is fluttering like a, um, an eagle or a bird um, over the eggs and caring for the, the eggs, right? Um, and so that's a very nurturing, very feminine sort of attribute, okay? And so what, what we do is we, we look at the beginning and the end of the, the Pentateuch, and I think there's a message there that's saying that the Holy Spirit the same Holy Spirit who's, well, it's actually the verse, the same Holy Spirit who is caring for the, um, the beginning of the creation this, in a nurturing sense is the same Holy Spirit who cared for Israel and the church of Jesus Christ, okay? And so what, what I would say is we can say that, actually I had this in a slide, but I didn't want it in writing, is that the Father is, can be said to be more like the men in his roles and the Holy Spirit can be seen to be kind of more like a feminine in, in his roles. Okay. But we still use pronoun his, cause that's what we've been given. That's what, God's given to us. That's what he's given to us. And it's, a uh, um, uh, again, I think a big motivator is he wants to be clear that he's a person and you got one of two choices. It's either he or she, right? Does that make sense? Now, a lot of this, it's like, we're talking, we're working this out um, definitively, eh, but yeah, there is no, um, in terms of being, and as a matter of fact, I had that up here was, uh, in terms of being, was in a lot of these, these sentences. So, did, did what I say make sense?
Okay. I think yep. God is male, period. Okay. I mean, I, I think scripture is, you know, God gave us the revelation, mm-hmm. and he, and even Jesus told us when we pray, address him as father. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Univocal versus analogous. But right. It sounds like you're saying that we're it's analogous. The maleness, it's analogous. Yes. And some of us are wondering if it shouldn't be taken more. Yeah. And I don't believe it. I don't believe it should. And man, it's already five after. Um, yeah, we just have to go ahead. Scripture also refers to mankind with male pronouns. Yeah. So does that mean that right. that all mankind is male? Well, no. Yeah. Not. Yeah. Let me. Um, They're all personal. In the next week, let me let me send you some stuff. Okay. That's what we'll have to do. Get, give it given this point. Who? Jenny. Jenny? That's okay. No, no. Go ahead. Right. Yes. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. And so, so to kind of summarize, if we're um, in the image of God. There's going to be some aspects of God that uh, uh, men are more like and some aspects of God that, that women are more like, right? And so it's kind of a, a little bit of a trade-off. Is that summarizing what you're saying? Yeah, I, I agree with that. And so I don't know if it'll be next week. I may talk to Ken and see if, if Ken wants to just kind of present the um, asexuality, I guess, of, of God. Um, but... Uh, if not, then I'll, I can do it the, the following week. But I'll, I'll send you some stuff just for, for prep or whatever. Um, the genders are created equally. I think we should probably... Yeah, and just the last one. Um, does this mean that both genders have, have the same roles? And, and no, it doesn't. And I wanted to go more into that. but um, So anyway, uh, let's pray. And then we will have uh, 20 minutes of fellowship. you mind closing us? Father, thank you so much for another day. Thank you for another breath and the time to come together as a, a body and consider who you are, how you relate to your creatures. We ask that you would uh, vivify all of us at this time, make us all more like your son, and allow us to worship you in spirit and in truth. Always let your will be done. In your son's name we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody.